Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Practicing the Way Vision Series. Okay, we're in a fall vision series on practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. And here's the basic idea. If you missed the last few weeks, make sure you go back and listen to the podcast. But here's the basic idea. To be an apprentice of Jesus is to order our life around three goals. Goal one is be with Jesus. Goal two, become like Jesus. Goal three, do what he did. That's essentially our paradigm here at Bridgetown Church. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means you basically erect the entirety of your life around those three goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. Now, we're working through that list one week at a time. Last week was all about how we change and are transformed to become like Jesus. And then up on the docket for tonight is number three, do what he did. So let's start off right here in Matthew chapter four. Look down at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother, Andrew. They were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Or that can be translated, if you have in particular an older translation, I will make you into fishers of men. Now, that, just to clarify, is not like a lame, cheesy pun. Fishers of men was a first century Hebrew idiom or figure of speech for a great teacher. A great teacher was called a fisher of men because he would capture men and women's minds and imagination. Jesus is saying, I'm a great teacher. Follow me or become my apprentice and I will make you into a great teacher as well. Which is why the next line we read, at once they left their nets and followed him. So they drop career like mid-morning fish and head out after Jesus. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Same thing. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, so he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, but also proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, it's a region of kind of 10 cities, Jerusalem down in the south, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, that's like not even an Israel, Israel, followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His Talmudim, or his disciples, or his apprentices, came to him, and he began to teach them. And then in chapter 5, 6, and 7, we read what is normally called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' manifesto for how to live as an apprentice in the brand new reality that he called the kingdom of God. And then turn past it to chapter 8 and look down at verse 18. Watch what happens next. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him. This is a full-time professional teacher of the Old Testament. And he said, Rabbi, I I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, really, are you sure? Foxes have dens, birds have nests, I'm homeless. Another disciple said, that's my kind of paraphrase. (laughs) 
Um, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head if you're really a stickler, all right? Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me, become my apprentice and let the dead bury their own dead. So some people are just, you know, eager to follow after Jesus, just chomping at the bit, pick me, pick me, pick me. It's like the nerdy homeschool kid in fifth grade who was never picked last. Not me, somebody else. Um, it's that kind of a thing. And then other people are more reluctant and kind of drag their feet and make excuses. And I like my dad's kind of elderly and I need to help out around the farm and you know, whatever and so on and so forth. Here's another one, skip down to chapter nine and look at verse nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, if you're new to the New Testament, a tax collector was essentially the dregs of first century Jewish society because he was a Jew who worked for the Roman Empire, the oppressor of the day. It's kind of Roman-occupied territory at the time of Jesus. It's essentially the first century equivalent of a Jewish informant in Nazi Germany right in the middle of World War II. So he's just the worst of the worst. Clearly, something is not right with this man daddy wound or something, family of origin, trauma, something. He's not, on a serious note, he's not a healthy man. But still, follow me, Jesus told him. Hey you, Matthew, tax collector, Benedict Arnold, become my apprentice. And so Matthew got up and followed him right then and there. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your rabbi eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means, quote from the Old Testament. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So point being, some of the people who follow Jesus are really messed up and in need of healing and don't have the act together, but still the open invite is there. You, Matthew, come, become my apprentice. Skip down to the end of the chapter, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his Talmudim, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I'm just one man. There are thousands, if not tens and thousands of people all over the place, up and down Israel. I'm, I need more workers. So ask the Lord of the harvest or pray, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. That word send, by the way, um, it's lost in translation from English to Latin to Greek, but that word send is where we get the word mission and every derivative off of it, such as missionary. All a missionary is, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with that word, all a missionary is, though, is a one who is sent by God into the work to join in the kingdom work of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Jesus is saying, pray, I need more work, I need a missionary to come by my side. And and where does Jesus turn? Chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 Talmudim to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. All right, now it's your turn. You're up, guys. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and who? 
Matthew the tax collector, there he is. He made it into the 12. James, Jesus must have been desperate. G- James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and the one and only Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, there's the word, with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That's, that's the message right there in one sentence. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And then I love this next line. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you've received. You've been following me around now for six months now, nine months, a year or two. You've been experiencing the love of the Father. Now you're up. You're on. Freely you have received. Now freely give. And then one more. Turn over to chapter 28, the very closing story in the Gospel of Matthew. Just one more. Stay with me. Sorry for all the Bible, you know. (laughs) I'm not really sorry, but... Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you see a pattern in there? Did you see it start to emerge in story after story after story? First you have Jesus come on the scene as a rabbi to teach But he's more than a rabbi. He's also the Messiah come to usher in the kingdom of God. And then early on, Jesus starts to call for apprentices or disciples. Hey, what's your name? Peter, come follow me. It's your brother, Andrew. You too, man. Come on, let's do this together. And the apprentices start to follow Jesus. By that I mean they start to live with Jesus and like Jesus. They start to copy kind of the example of Jesus' life and adopt the practices of Jesus, getting up in the morning to pray and read or memorize or study Torah and practice Sabbath on the weekend and live in community and radical hospitality and then generosity. They start to adopt the life of Jesus. As a result, they are changed. And then there comes a moment when Jesus says, okay, guys, I I think it's been a little while now. I think you're ready. Peter, you see that sick woman over there? Here's the Holy Spirit. Go heal her. Andrew, you see that demonized man over there? Mm -hmm, That's you. Have fun. Um, James, I want you to head over to Chorazin and preach the gospel. John, how about you head to Bethsaida and teach the way? Matthew, I have a job for you up in Tyre. Go out. We'll meet back here in a week or two or three. And the apprentices all go out and preach the gospel that the kingdom of God is close by and then come back and debrief with Jesus. I don't have time to read that story, but it's really fascinating. There's this kind of like, oh, that's great, guys. Don't rejoice in there. You know that story? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Fantastic story. And then there comes a moment when Jesus says, okay, and this is multiple years into the apprenticeship program. Okay, you're, you're ready. I think you have what it takes. Go and make disciples. And you're not alone. I'm with you to the end of the age. The pattern is that of apprenticeship to a master. Social theorists point out there are four stages to apprenticeship. 
Stage one, this is kind of leadership development 101 stuff. If you're in the marketplace at all, you know this already. Stage one, I do, you watch. Stage two, I do, you help. I think of Jesus like, and the feeding of the 5,000. And hey, like you pass out the bread. That's about what you have the capacity for, Peter. Pass out the bread, all right? <laughs> Stage three is you do, and then I help. Okay, now it's your turn. Go out, uh-huh, and I'm there to coach you and help you out. And then stage four is you do, I watch. On the language of Matthew, go and make disciples. I'm with you to the end of the age. This is the exact same pattern that we see Jesus map out one story at a time. Meaning what? Meaning the end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to do what he did. Oh, we have an electrician's apprentice who was running sound this morning, great guy named Joel. He's in a four-year apprenticeship program. His goal four years from now, I think he just started a few months ago, is to graduate and become a what? Electrician and wake up every morning and wire a house. This morning we also had an electrician's apprentice at church who's in a five-year program. His goal five years from now is to become a what? Electrician and, you know, do whatever, wire house, do his thing. We have a number of you in medical school. You're in residency right now. That talk, that's not four years, that's five years. That's like 30 years. Well done. <laughs> have fun. So four years of undergrad, four years of medical school. School is it, right, for most of you, four years of residency, another two years in your specialty. I'm guessing your goal at the end of that is not just to watch Grey's Anatomy and know what everything means. <laughs> I'm guessing your goal is to become a doctor and to practice medicine. Am I right? I'm right. Trust me. I'm right on that one. And uh, now track with me. This, this, track with me. This is a really simple idea that honestly a ton of people, in particular in the West, miss. If you are an apprentice of Jesus, your end goal is to grow and mature, not overnight, but over a time, into the kind of person who can carry on the work of Jesus. What was that exactly? Well, it was more than teaching. It was to usher in the kingdom of God. As I see it, you can break down the work of Jesus into, I don't know, about 10 categories. This is my reading of the four gospels. Feel free to edit and move stuff around however you want, but here's my list. Preaching the gospel, teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people far from God, doing justice, peacemaking, praying, prophesying, and standing up against religious and political corruption. So if you're an apprentice of Jesus, your end goal is to be able to do all of that. You don't need to hyperventilate right now, but maybe take notes, you know, it's kind of important. That's your end goal, that's like, you know, if it takes four years to become a plumber, it might take you a little bit longer to become Jesus. But that down the line, as you grow and you mature, that's the end goal. Now, in all honesty, right here is right where I lose about half of you. I know what a ton of you are thinking right now. Anytime, this is something that I've been discovering as a pastor over the last few years, anytime we talk about Jesus as the example of how to live, anything, whether it's a few weeks ago talking about be like Jesus and uh, Jesus' metaphor of abiding in the vine and how we had that great, I think, idea that if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And so Jesus like, has on offer life to the full, but he also has this, this pattern, this set of practices that made up Jesus' way or his way of life. And we believe that the way of Jesus is not just a set of ideas, it's not a religion called Christianity. It is a way of life, a new way to be human in the reality that Jesus called the kingdom of God. Or anytime you talk about become Jesus and how we adopt the practices of 
of Jesus and live in community and are changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit to live like Jesus. Anytime, in particular when you talk about this, do what Jesus did, all that, if you want to call that mission or ministry or kingdom or whatever, anytime you talk about Jesus as the example, people think, well, yeah, that's great, but Jesus was God, not me. I'm like, not Jesus or God, neither, like zero for two. For the last two to three hundred years, ever since the Enlightenment, people have read the Gospels and all the stories about the life of Jesus, especially the miracle stories, not as a template for a new way to be human, which is how they were were originally read, but for the last two or three hundred years, more as, quote, proof that Jesus was God. So most of you know this, but in the Enlightenment, really for the first time in Western history, the educated, a lot of the educated elite said, you know, we believe in the natural, but not the supernatural. And that language of natural, supernatural, you notice I never, ever, ever use that language up here. And it's because that's an enlightenment category, that there's a natural world and a supernatural world, and the two are separate and at arm's length from each other. I don't buy it. It's not the worldview of Jesus or the writers of the Bible. So you have for the first time, well, we have the natural and we have the supernatural. And so people said, we believe that Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher for sure maybe a Messiah or something, a figure like that, but no more. He was not the Son of God. And so the comeback from men and women of faith, and it was well-meaning, but it was kind of this not thought through knee-jerk reaction, was, well, well, look at the miracle stories. Like, a man can't heal the sick, a man can't cast out a demon, a man can't raise the dead or whatever. The problem with that line of thinking is the disciples all did miracles as well, and pretty much the exact same ones, and we don't believe they were God. Um, Same with the early church, same with all sorts of men and women of faith before Jesus. Like you have the story of, you know, Jesus and the storm and the wind and the waves. Yeah, but you also have Moses and the Red Sea or Joshua and the Jordan River. What about Jesus walking on water? Elijah, have you read that story? What about Jesus feeding 5,000 people like Elisha? Have you read that story? So you see the problem? Like that logic just does not play out. Long story short, Jesus did all that he did as a real true human being empowered by the Holy Spirit as the example for you and I to follow. If you want more in-depth teaching on that, go back and listen to our Holy Spirit series. But short version, when God became Jesus of Nazareth, we used this language a year ago, he put aside the God card. It's like he had an all access pass to the universe And when he became, when he was born as Jesus of Nazareth, he put that down and he became Jesus of Nazareth, not an avatar. It's not like God in a Jesus body or whatever. He actually became Jesus of Nazareth and he did what he did by the Holy Spirit. And then his disciples did what they did the same way by the Holy Spirit. And then the early church did what they did by the Holy Spirit. And now you and I do what we do in the line of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish I could just end my teaching right here. I'm guessing a bunch of you wish that as well. Yeah, I wish I could just say, hey, great. That was kind of number three. You're an apprentice of Jesus. Goal is like, do what he did. So have fun this week. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, You're in community. Great, go for it. Do what he did on the streets of Portland, in your neighborhood, at the office. See you next Sunday. But the problem is, that's only 18 minutes of teaching. I'm not even, li- I, need, I need to waste more of your time. That's really, no. The, the problem is, we live in a very complex and challenging cultural moment. I feel like doing mission or whatever you want to call it is so much harder than it was even a decade ago. I mean, I was thinking of when we started, um, this church started six or so years ago as a plant of a 
college gathering that a number of us were a part of called The Way. Anybody back from then? Yeah, well done. So, um, so there's this thing and it was great. And I'm just thinking about how much has changed since then in the last decade. We now have the internet and social media and the iPhone and urbanization that's changed everything. Most of us are now over busy. Boredom is like a thing of the past. Remember when that was a problem? Remember when we used to get bored? It was like 1987. It was quite, well, it was like a huge thing. Like boredom, my grandma used to have this thing like idleness is the devil's workshop. Like that was my grandma's line and my mom would quote us to all the time. Nobody's ever idle anymore. Nobody's ever bored anymore. We have the internet. Like we're always go, go, go and over busy and living in the city. Plus, we've moved from, in particular, you really feel at an acute level the last decade, from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. And as we said over the summer in the Creative Minority Series, in a post-Christian culture, the thing about it is it's a reaction against Christian culture. It's like the rebellious teenager who's mad at mom and dad. So there's this built-in bias and even hostility at times to the way of Jesus. You can feel it in the air the second you bring up Jesus in a conversation. So here we are, like, in the digital age and a secular progressive urban city just trying to figure out how to be the people of Jesus in our time and our place. And I love this working definition of church, a community of followers of Jesus seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. And I love that word seeking because it says that we're not there yet. We're still very much in process. Our church is a living laboratory. I wish we had the formula to like, here it is and follow it and you're good, but we don't. We're a living laboratory trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. So to end, I just wanna lay out five brief thoughts and my hope is that you move from feeling overwhelmed to feeling empowered. First off is this, if you're taking notes. Remember the spiritual formation paradigm from last week. We covered this just last Sunday, but we'll, and we'll come back to it starting next week because it's really key. But short version, put it back up there, to grow and mature into the kind of person who can join in Jesus' kingdom work. Any kind of change at all, it takes teaching. Like you're not gonna figure it out on your own all, you know, really fast. It takes practice. Nobody's good at healing the sick or preaching the gospel or whatever right from the start. It takes community, like we don't go at it alone. And above all, it takes the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's right there in the center and he gets a triangle, not a rectangle. Because he, that was kind of a joke. Because he is the center of all that we do. I had somebody ask me after last Sunday, I was like, hey, that was great, but are you saying that like the Holy Spirit isn't the one to change us or transform us? I said, oh my gosh, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. He's right at the center of all that we do. It's not just wait around for that. We have a part to play as well. He has a part, we have a part, but he is right at the center. It's by the Holy Spirit that we do teaching, by the Holy Spirit that we do practice, by the Holy Spirit that we do community. And it it takes time, like this is just not going to happen. I'm thinking about a good friend of mine who's not a follower of Jesus, who is the stereotype of all things Portland on so many levels, wealthy and smart and creative and Buddhist and the whole thing. And we're in this series of conversations about Jesus of Nazareth that are deep and profound and raw and open and honest. But a guy like that's not going to have one like glass of beer and 
you know, just, oh, Jesus, cool, and then let me pray, or come to church and sit through one teaching, and then at the end, yes, that's what I need. Like, it's a long series of life together over time, and through, of course, the hard knocks of life. So remember the paradigm. Lean into teaching. Lean into practice. Lean into community. Above all, lean into the Holy Spirit. Secondly, this is really stirring in my heart. Know your stage of discipleship and season of life. So just track with me for a minute or two. This, I really feel like, is from God for us. Um, as we said, the three goals of apprenticeship are be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did. That is not a three-step formula, like step one, be with Jesus. But there is a progression to it, right, from one stage to the next. And those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, you nod like you get that. Most of us start out with be with Jesus. That was kind of Jesus thing. Hey, you, what's your name? Andrew? Great. Come follow me. Hang out with me. I'm over at so-and-so's house this afternoon. Let's hang out and talk and pray together. And you start to adopt the practices. As you follow Jesus and live with and like Jesus, you start to adopt the practices of Jesus and lean into what are usually called the spiritual disciplines and community and all of that. You orient your life around God. You start to cultivate a lifestyle of what Jesus called abiding in the vine. Out of that, you start to experience the love of the Father through the Holy Spirit. And then it's inevitable you start to become like Jesus through all of that, through teaching and practice and community and the Holy Spirit. And over time, you're changed and you're transformed kind of inside out. You start to take on the inner disposition of Jesus and leak out in the language of the New Testament the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and on down the list. And then it's an, you never graduate, like you never graduate past abiding. You never like don't need to change anymore or move forward or grow or mature. But then inevitably you start to grow and mature into the kind of person who is with Jesus and is like Jesus. And then you start to do what he did. You start to just have this sense of the Holy Spirit stirring up in you. I need to go. I need to go. I need to do. I need to do. Call that mission or ministry or kingdom or whatever. So what stage are you at in your apprenticeship to Jesus? The reality is that some of you just started following Jesus. Um, You're just now starting to take on the practices of Jesus. You're just now starting to hear God's voice for the first time. Others of you have that down, um, but you're starting now to really change. You're doing deep work with your community and the Holy Spirit and a pastor or director or friend or something like that, dealing with family of origin or a wound from your dad or your mom or a addiction or a habit in your mind or your heart, something like that and that's kind of right what you're right in the thick of and then others of you you're like no I've been following Jesus for a while now I'm living into the rhythm set by Jesus of Nazareth and I still have a long ways to go but I've been set free and transformed and now it's really time for me to step into my identity and step into my calling as a follower of Jesus all that to say know your stage know where you're at um And don't try to jump ahead. Now that doesn't mean like you need to follow Jesus for five or 10 years before you do anything. You're like, oh, sorry, I can't volunteer at Bridgetown. I'm just focusing on abiding right now or whatever. (laughs) Why don't you focus on abiding with the two-year-olds? They could use a little help with that too. That would be great. Um, So that's not what I'm saying at all. Like of course, it's not a a formula. It's not a three-step thing. But know your stage of discipleship. Know what it is that Jesus is doing in your life right now and say yes full on to that moment. And know your season of life. There are seasons to life. Jesus lived in obscurity for three decades. What was Jesus doing during that time? 
Exactly. We have no idea. If you're thinking, I don't know. Nobody does. We have no clue. He was just living in obscurity in a village called Nazareth up in the north of Galilee. Then that was followed by three years of intense, like full-on kingdom work. But even in those three years, there were seasons where Jesus would go away for 40 days into the desert to fast and pray. And then seasons when he was down in Jerusalem, right in the frenetic urban chaos and standing up against the religious snobbery and on political corruption and all of that and then other seasons when he was up in the mount on the mountain with his disciples teaching for weeks at a time what season of life are you in if you're a mom or a dad with you know three kids under five like you're not really in the place where it's like oh I have a day off what's that list okay here we go preaching the gospel teaching the way healing the sick casting out demons unless if the demon is your three-year-old that's just not Where you're at, you're just trying to survive to nap time to get like just like 45 minutes to bathe and maybe if you're extra into apprenticeship, read a psalm or something like that. That's, that's fantastic. Don't feel guilty, no shame or pressure at all. This is where, you know, that, the classic question, what would Jesus do, that we really made popular in the 90s through this fantastic piece of, you know, jewelry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we laugh, but it was a kind of a great thing. Like, it's not a bad question, but it is a bit misleading. What would Jesus do? Well, the problem is that Jesus was a first century male Jewish itinerant rabbi. So it's a little tricky. Most of you, that's, that's not who you are. Most of you. So, so like if you're praying, I was thinking about this, if you're praying about where should I live and should I rent or should we buy, should we stay in the city or move out to Beaverton where we can like be in traffic for forever but have a really big house that's way cheaper or whatever. Like, and you're praying about that, and you're asking the Holy Spirit, what would Jesus do? It's not really a helpful question. He would probably just camp a lot and couch surf on his rich friend's like living room. Like that's kind of, that was what, we know actually what he did and that's what he did. And, you're not coming over to my couch, I'm sorry. Like, it's just not going to happen. So all that to say, I love the heart impulse behind that question, but an even better question, it's very similar but different, is what would Jesus do if he were me? And that takes creativity and community to kind of answer that question. What would Jesus do if he were me, if he had my gender, if he had my age or stage of life, if he had my ethnicity, if he had my education or lack thereof, my experience, good or bad, if he had my upbringing, if he had my apartment or condo or job, what would Jesus do if he were me? And that, I think, is a far more interesting question for you and me as we apprentice under Jesus. The hard thing about leading a church, um, at least for me and Gerald and our team, is that we're not all in the same place. So right now, some of you need like a really loving but swift kick in the pants to get out there, like stop wasting your life on Netflix and go join in the kingdom of God. Others of you need to hear, whoa, 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 like no, slow down and let the Holy Spirit do a deep work of healing in your heart, in your soul, in your body, whatever it is. All that to say, listen to the Holy Spirit, listen to the community around you, know your stage of discipleship and your season of life and make peace with it. Third is this, do not underestimate the power of just practicing the way of Jesus in community. 
I absolutely love this line. It's one of my all-time favorites from the New Testament. This is out of Peter's letter, chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, remember that language from the summer series, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, all right, and pagans is not a derogatory term in the New Testament at all, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, how you live, and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's vision is of a church that is practicing the way of Jesus together in a neighborhood or a city. And it is so compelling that people literally flock to the church to ask questions about this new way to be human. I read this Dallas Willard quote a few days ago and I thought it was worth reading to all of you. Quote, there is a special evangelistic work to be done, of course, and there are special callings to it. But if those in the churches really are enjoying fullness of life, evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. The local assembly or church for its part can then become, and I just love this idea, an academy where people throng from the surrounding community to learn how to live. It will be a school of life for a disciple is but a pupil or a student where all aspects of that life seen in the New Testament records are practiced and then mastered under the leadership of those who have themselves mastered them through practice. Only by taking this as our immediate goal can we intend to carry out the Great Commission. Is that a beautiful idea? I'm an idealist and a perfectionist. I read that, I'm like, yeah, bring it on. Like, I know that's not always reality, and if you don't believe me, just go on Facebook, and it's clearly, we're not there yet. But, actually don't go on Facebook. But, Beautiful idea. I mean, what if we, Bridgetown Church, and all the other followers of Jesus in our city, what if we are known as, oh yeah, those people are kind of weird and odd and very different, but man, those people do Sabbath. They don't get sucked into the rat race. They're not digitally addicted. They look you in the eye and talk to you and they care about you. They, they love you and they love you well. They practice hospitality. They live in community. They're not lonely. They're dealing with pain from family and becoming who God created them to be and on. They know what joy is they know what peace is like what they're not perfect but man they put on display a whole other way to live all that to say don't underestimate the power of practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland four is this start with the basics like those of you thinking oh my gosh where do I start start with the basics eat with people far from God like that's if you're like that list of 10 was overwhelming to you, just start somewhere really easy. It's a great book I read a number of years ago called A Meal with Jesus by this Brit named Tim Chester. It's short, easy, worth your time, particularly if you're in a community and you care about your neighborhood. And he does this great job with two famous scriptures from the Gospel of Luke. The first one is from chapter 19. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the other one is also from the Gospel of Luke. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He says a great thing about how so what did Jesus come to do? Seek and save the lost. How did Jesus do it? By eating and drinking. How awesome is that? So it's like, what was Jesus' strategy for reaching the world with the kingdom of God? It's like, you up in the tree, what's your name? Zach, that's a sweet 90s name. Um, <laughs> hey, why don't, why don't we have dinner? I'm homeless, so not at my house. But, but rumor has it, 
you oppress the poor so you have a really wicked nice mansion up in the hills. <laughs> so we're gonna get you to sell it. But first, let's go over to your house and eat through your pantry. If you have water, I'll make some wine and <laughs> dinner at your house and bring all your other poor oppressing friends and we'll, we'll have a chat. We'll have a great party. It shall be fantastic. That, that was Jesus' strategy. Like it's not rocket science and there's no silver bullet, but Jesus' strategy when he was not in the synagogue with people that were not like in the synagogue world, it was, hey, what's your name? Great, dinner, your house tonight, 6 p.m. <laughs> Man, so how do we reach the city of Portland, Oregon? It's not rocket science. Hey, you're my neighbor. What are you doing Thursday night? I make a mean vegan something, enchilada <laughs> or whatever. You're thinking, I can't cook, learn one meal. You can all do that, right? You're smart, intelligent people. Actually, not all of you can do, I've, I've had some of your cooking and it's rare, but some of it's not. So if that's, if you really can't, order hot lips or whatever, whatever your thing is, all right? So, but just have, share a meal. Go on a lunch break. Have somebody into your apartment or condo or home. Just share a meal with somebody far from God. You know, we're reading through the Bible as a community and this week we read Romans and I just absolutely loved Romans chapter 12 and uh, it's worth your time. Read it before you go to bed tonight or something. It's just this great kind of vision of what the church is all about. And there was one command in there, two words long, and it was practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. That's a command in the way of Jesus. Not an idea, not a suggestion. It's a command for you and I to practice hospitality. What if we were known across our city for radical hospitality? What if your house was known as the place, your apartment was known as the place where people go to eat and to drink and to celebrate and also to be loved? So many people in our city are transplants with little or no community. So many people are isolated in the digital world. So many people are at odds with their family of origin. The simple act of eating and drinking with people far from God can change our city and change our world. Um, my wife and I, about a little over two years ago, moved into a new neighborhood, uh, kind of right up the street here. We wanted to be really close in the city. And long story short, I don't need to bore you with the details, but it's a rental. So we sold our house, moved in this rental, and our plan was just to live there for about a year and then stay in the same neighborhood but move to a different house. Long story short, um, that's not happening. So now we're two years in and we're going to be there at least another two years. So one year became four years, which is fine. But it was really interesting. In our last neighborhood, we were all about like neighborhood and radical hospitality and the Normans over here moved in one house over from us and we would just regularly open up our home, any excuse to throw a party. So basically every holiday except for Columbus Day, we know that's bad, but other, every other, <laughs> it is actually, but every other holiday it was like, we're a party at our house, barbecue, whatever, 4th of July, block party, Christmas, the whole thing. Somebody new would move into the neighborhood and we would throw a welcome, you know, Saturday morning brunch at our house or whatever. When we moved out, it was really sad because we were really rooted in the neighborhood and everybody started to call me the mayor of the neighborhood. I thought that was, <laughs> Matt said that somebody asked him recently, like, how's the mayor doing? I haven't seen him in a while. So I, I wear that with pride. So so all that to say, it was an interesting dynamic. We did really well, I think, in our last neighborhood at Radical Hospitality. But then we moved into this rental and we're like, ah, oh, we're only going to be here for a year. And so we didn't do anything at all. And so now a year has become two years, which is going to become four years. 
and I, it hit me just the last few weeks, oh my gosh, I'm no longer practicing hospitality for my literal neighbor. Like Jesus said the two greatest commandments in all of the Bible are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That is not a metaphor. Like we take love your neighbor as yourself, we turn love into this abstract kind of conceptual feeling that we interpret to be like be nice to people. It's not what Jesus was saying by the way. I mean be nice, but that's, I think he had more in mind. And then your neighbor becomes like the people out there in the universe or whatever. Like no, I think Jesus meant love as in do something helpful, your neighbor as in the person next to you. The person in your neighborhood, the person that is literally your neighbor. You want to know, like Jesus said, that was the second most important commandment in all of the Bible of his day. So this this is not like a peripheral kind of side thing. No, eating and drinking, hospitality, loving your neighbor as yourself. This is front and center to the way of Jesus. And it's so beautifully simple and straightforward. And no matter where you're at or how overwhelmed you are with work or life or family, pretty much all of you can do this. We make mission or ministry or whatever so complex and overwhelming and difficult that a few type A people just go crazy and then burn out. And, every, and then a lot of people just shut down and don't do anything. And I love how beautifully simple this is, a basic idea just to get you started on a regular basis, share a meal. So just recently, my wife and I started once a month, our community, which we meet on Tuesday nights. We don't meet on Tuesday nights, we just did it last week. And instead, we open up our home to somebody in the neighborhood. And we had just a beautiful time with a neighbor that we love and care about a ton. Just this last week, just once a month, just a beautiful space to eat and drink with people far from God. Finally, and then we'll wrap up, is just this encouragement to live in the moment. If you think about that list of preaching the gospel and teaching the way and healing the sick, all of that, I'm an obsessive scheduler. Like I have a problem. If you look at my iCal, you would say he has a problem. Like literally, I put sleep on there, like 10 to 6, and then literally it's like 6 to 6.15, make coffee, do yoga, and then it's like, it's, I have a problem. But that, that is not a list you schedule. It's not like, oh, healing the sick every Thursday from 3.30 to 5.30. <laughs> Casting out a demon, first Monday of the month from, like it's not something you schedule. All of that is an interruption to your daily life. Most of the miracle stories of Jesus were an interruption. Jesus was on the road to somewhere else. This is where the real beautiful stuff of Jesus happens as an interruption. I love that line, go into all the world can also be translated as you are going. As you're going tomorrow morning on your bicycle to White and Kennedy for work. As you're taking Frankie to the dog park tomorrow night to do his thing or whatever. And then in that moment, as you see somebody, Jesus had this uncanny ability to see people right where they are at. To pay attention, to see what God was up to in somebody's life and then to join with God in that moment. Beautiful prayer for us all in the morning is to wake up and say, God, help me slow down today. Help me live in the moment, not in the future, not in the past, not this afternoon, not at my big meeting at 11, right now, this moment, breathing it in, breathing it out. Help me to have eyes to see what you're doing and to join in. And in the beautiful interruptions and moments of life, Who knows what God is waiting to do in you and through you. So, to to wrap up, no matter how complex or challenging our city and our day and age are, no matter what stage of life or season of life or stage of discipleship you're in, all of us can sit around a table with somebody far from God. 
all of us can grow and mature and apprentice under Jesus to become the kind of people who are about what Jesus is about. All of us can slow down, open our eyes, and see the kingdom of God breaking in like weeds breaking up through the pavement. See what God is up to and join. Let's all stand and pray together. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.